join me in praying. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word and continue to study the book of James, by your Holy Spirit, will you please speak to us? Lord, where we need to be challenged, would we be open to that? Where we need to be encouraged, will you lift us up? And in all ways, God, please equip us in every area of life to live kingdom first. Every day of every week of every year. For the honor and glory of our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are coming into flu season. Last year it was bad, really bad. Um, you might remember that we had about two months where we were not drinking from the chalice because the flu season was so bad. Well, my family has just gotten their flu shots. Four out of five of us are old enough to go to Target, and Target at times even pays you to get a flu shot. So you go to Target, get your flu shot, but our youngest is not old enough yet. So my, I'd gotten mine, my wife took the two older kids, they went to Target, I stayed home with the younger one. We talked about the flu shot. He was scared of the flu shot. We talked about it, I said, look, it's okay, it doesn't hurt that bad, I already gotten mine, you're going to be good. So then my family comes home from Target, and my seven-year-old walks in the door, and he is leaning all the way over like he's Quasimodo. And he's like coming in, it hurts so bad. Like, thanks, buddy, that helps so much. And throughout the rest of the day, he's like holding his arm as if it's falling off. And everything he does, it's, let me grab with a good hand. We had to do some cleaning. He kept one arm completely stiff at his side, and he's cleaning his room with the other one only. And just the whole night, I'm like, it's okay. And so the next morning, he's got to go this night. The next morning, 6.30, we're having breakfast, getting ready for school. And I come in, and this is what I hear from my seven-year-old to my five-year-old. It'll only hurt for a few days. <laughs> like, would you stop? He's like, but daddy, it's the worst pain I've ever felt. Like, he's sitting right there. My poor five-year-old's eyes are just getting bigger and bigger. I'm like, golly, just stop talking. Go have breakfast somewhere else. The flu shot. Why do we do it? Because according to the CDC, according to the best medical information we have, it's the best thing we can do against the flu. It's not perfect. In fact, last year, it was so bad, it was only 40% effective. But it's still 40% more effective than not having it. And so we do it because it's the best thing we could do that we know of to help us with an issue that we don't have good defense against. The problem is the flu. And the best solution that we know of, medically speaking, is to get a flu shot. Today, as we continue in James, we're going to talk about a significant problem. In fact, you could argue that it's the biggest problem in the book of James, which is a pretty big statement considering the things that we've covered so far. 
I mean, you think about this book and everything we've challenged, we've been going through. This is, and here's why I say it could be considered the biggest problem in the book. Because this is, according to basically every scholar you'll read, this is the heart of the book. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, this is what he was leading up to. That everything else, in some sense, was moving to this pinnacle, and then it will descend down from it, from this point. That this is the highlight, this is the piece that he was aiming at. And he's going to talk about a singular problem and then give a singular solution to that problem. And here's the problem with the solution. One, it's going to sound a little bit mundane and like trite and like we've heard that before. And and so that creates another problem. I don't know if we'll take the solution seriously enough or not. A problem and a solution. That's it. Open up your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Much like last week, he begins with a question. And the question flows right out of what he's been saying. Last week, he ended with this verse. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a beautiful verse. All about peace. In fact, everything that he was going for, the entire idea of wisdom from above, is about peace. It's about relationships. And then he asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Which seems a little bit like a, oh, this beautiful thing of sowing peace, and so why are you fighting? That's kind of what he does. He goes from this idea of the wisdom from above and living that out brings peace. Well, if it brings peace, and if the wisdom from below causes conflict, he comes to this question, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Here is the problem. It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here is the problem in James, our passions. What does that word mean? Well, we get the word hedonism from it. And it is used in scripture a couple of different times and every time it's negative in scripture. Its main meaning seems to be lust, especially sexual lust, but it's a broader term that covers pleasures, satisfaction, gratification, and it comes down to this right here. I want to ask you a question. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? Let's start with the negatives. What kinds of things do you desire, long for, lust after, that you know aren't good? What are those things that you know are wrong and yet you still have a drive in you to have them? You want those things. Is there a particular fame or position or a way you want people to see you 
that you just keep going after? Is there something that you lust after, whether that is a thing or a person? What is it that you are driven to that you know is wrong? And on the other side, what passions do you have that are good? What are things that are right? Do you have a passion for the poor? Do you have a passion to see people lifted up? What are your good passions? Because here's the thing about this text. It doesn't matter if your passion is good or bad. It may still be wrong. How is that possible? How in the world could I have a passion for feeding the poor and it still be wrong? I want you to just go through with me on this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's an internal war happening. Do you have any of that? Do you feel conflict inside of you sometimes? You want something, you don't want something, you want something, you shouldn't want this something. You want this thing over here, but you don't know if you have the energy to do it. Is there a conflict inside you? Verse 2 You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I want to say something about this little section here. It's a beautiful parallel there. Notice how it's two things and a so, and then two things and a so. Um, The thing is, the Greek is really not written that way. Um, It's not a bad way of translating it. And normally I wouldn't say anything about it except I think it makes it too clean. I think James is really passionate right now in this section. And much like you get in the Apostle Paul a number of times where Paul will just start going off, and there are things he says at times in the epistles that are really hardcore. And it's as if he's going on, he's like, and just, that's a, I think James has a similar thing here. I don't think it's so clean as to you do this and this and so, and this and this and so. In Greek, it reads something a little bit more like you desire, or the word means to lust after, and you do not have, and so you murder, and you covet, and you still don't have. It flows more like that. It's this like, you want this thing and you don't have it, and so then, and and by the way, murder here is very likely not literal. Um, it's very unlikely there's people in these congregations that are like, I want what you have, and you kill somebody. Uh, that's probably not what's happening. But it is a very harsh word within the language that he's using. Notice quarreling, fighting, murder, enmity, enemy. They're all war images. It's very strong war language. And I think this keeps that image going. Right? You want something, you lost after something, you don't have it, and so you're willing to attack other people. That's what he's getting at. You're willing to have this conflict because the internal conflict in you is expressing itself outwardly against others. Your passions that are at war are coming out and you're going after other people. And you can do that even when your passion is right. That's part of the problem. We're gonna address the placement of our passions in a moment. But right now, I just want you to see where it's coming from. 
these strong desires in us that are causing us to go after people. Keep going. You, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Instead of even asking, and by the way, asking here probably goes all the way back. If you don't have wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask. Pray for it. Right? You have this desire in you, and you're not even asking God about it. You're just trying to get it yourself. And then, unfortunately, he keeps going. And then when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly because all you care about is your passion as opposed to God and his passion and what he wants. Even if the passion may be right, if you're pursuing it head down going forward and only caring about what you want in that, it's still asking wrongly because it's missing him. Um, so we moved six, seven months ago, and in the new house, our address is 2298, and there's like 4498, and there's like a couple of different addresses that are very, very similar to ours, and multiple times now, UPS has come by, and they have dropped off a package for the wrong house. And so we're having to run packages around our neighborhood to, to bring it to people because they're getting, we're getting their packages. Not just mail, but like UPS packages. Well, it happened again on Friday. I'm in my office. I'm working on my sermon. Dog starts barking. You hear a knock on the door. I walk over, get the package. I pick it up, and it's to like marry something. That, oh, there's the address again. And the UPS guy's driving away. Ugh. Like, I wish they would stop doing this. Like, it, it's, it's really inconvenient. It's a pain in the rear. I was focused. I had something going on here. I'm trying to put a sermon together, right? Because you all need something that is somewhat valuable on Sunday mornings. So here I am working on this, and the UPS guy's interrupting me for what? Not even my package. So I take the package inside. I go and sit down. I think, all right, later on, I'll have my daughter run this somewhere. And then I hear the UPS truck again. Like, oh, and so I run outside, and he's coming up. I wave him down. I was like, hey, this isn't ours. See, this isn't ours. He goes, oh, sorry about that. So he takes the package, and I go back inside. I'm like, whew, that's taken care of. A few minutes later, the UPS truck has stopped. It's down the road a little bit, and I see a guy running across my yard. I'm sitting there. The front windows go out to the yard and a package is dropped off. I'm like, oh, he must have, you know. So I go out there and I pick it up. It's the same package. I was so ticked off. I pick this package up and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you so lazy you can't take this around the corner? And so I went after him because that's what priests should do, right? <laughs> and I go after this UPS. I'm like, hey, stop. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is not my address. I didn't say this part. Do you not know I'm busy working on a sermon for church? That's what I'm thinking. And I'm like, and he goes, uh, sir, sir. I'm like, what? That's not the same package. Look at the address. Oh, almost the exact same envelope, everything. I mean, it looked almost exactly the same. And I just start shrinking down. And he goes, no, it's okay, it's okay. 
And I turn around and I hear this, God bless you, sir. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I head back and home, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm a terrible person. It's awful. I was absolutely passionate about something that in general was okay. I just wanted the mail to go to the right person. Is there anything wrong with that? I didn't want to have to be running mail around my neighborhood all the time. Is there anything wrong with that? No, but my passion became stronger than anything else. And I lost sight of even just looking at the address. I mean, literally, I just saw it. I mean, it wasn't exactly the same, but it was close enough. And I was just so frustrated with my passion that I lost it. When your passion is stronger than anything else, the passion takes control. And you know what happens? You get to this point here. James chapter four and verse four. You adulterous people. Someday, I just wanna like, in the middle of a sermon, you adulterous people! That would not fit well today, would it? <laughs> and here is James, and I mean, just, I read that for the first time and I think, okay, I understand. Like their passions are out of control. They're causing conflict. But you adulterous people, is that really, I mean, is it that bad? What does that even mean? Well, we know what adultery is, right? When you cheat on your spouse committing adultery. How does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with what he's talking about here? How are my inward passions that are warring in me, causing me to go after other people, how is that making me an adulterous person? But he keeps going. And it's not any less harsh. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What are you talking about, James? I mean, I'm not offering, like, friendship to the world here. I've just got a passion that got a little out of control. What are you talking about? He keeps going, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, I'm not trying to be a friend of the world, James, makes himself an enemy of God. Gosh, I really don't want to be an enemy of God. What are you getting at? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Here's where James goes with it. James says this is about so much more than just your passions. It's about who's ruling your life. It's about who's actually sitting on top. Is it your passions or is it your God? Which one of those is really driving you? Because here's the thing that I can guarantee you based on the scriptures. When my passions are in control and they are separated from the lordship of my God, my passions will be out of control and I will end up doing things that do not honor my God. I will end up treating people like I did with that UPS guy. I will end up doing things that are not right no matter how good my cause might be. How many of you have experienced this? You can have the right cause and still do it the wrong way. Without God leading, without God being first, our saying, live kingdom first, that's what it's all about. 
It is not about any other thing being primary in your life ahead of God. And I don't care what that thing is. I've said this before. We're an Anglican church, but we are Christian first. You know that Anglican can be a passion that can get out of control and it can actually be against what God wants. Because if I start trying to make Anglicans instead of Christians, it is out of control and he is not on the top. Now, there's nothing wrong with being Anglican. I'm Anglican because I think there's great value in Anglicanism. And yet, that good passion can be done wrongly when God is not at the top. And just fill in the blank. I don't care what it is. Do you know that your passion for your family can get out of control if God is not at the top? Now, is there anything wrong with having a passion for your family? Definitely not. But if your passions are not sitting under the lordship of the one who made the spirit in you, then there is a war between your spirit and the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And that war will spill out. And you will end up making decisions that can hurt other people. Because he has to be Lord even over your family. I don't care what it is. I don't care what social cause, what political cause, what economic cause. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how good those things might be. If they get out from under the Lordship of Christ, if they become primary, if you find yourself going so passionately after something and he's not in the picture, James will come back and say, you're an adulterous person. You're cheating on God by your passion. He needs to be first. He's got to be at the top all the time. Because here's the thing, God does not fit any of our categories. God is not Anglican, he's not Baptist, God is not any denomination. God is not Republican, God is not Democrat, he's not Libertarian, he's not any political persuasion. Any kind of categories we have, he is above all those things. And so when we get lost in those things, we're not submitting first to him. I'm gonna give an example, and I really, really hesitate to give this example because um, I learned relatively early on in preaching. You have to be extremely careful when you give an example where you as the person giving the example, sound too good in the example. So, I'm gonna give an example. <laughs> but I'm gonna base it off of something somebody else said, right? not me. I'm based off of what somebody else said. But at this point, I can't think of a better way to express this. I was talking to a friend in the church. And this is what he said to me. And it's in the midst of, um, I mean, unless your head is in the sand right now, we are more politically polarized right now than we've been in a long time in this country. You agree with that? And I had a friend who said to me, 
said, I've been listening to you teach for like eight years. And he said, I still don't know where you stand politically. I don't know what party you're for. I don't, I don't know what you, I can make some guesses off of things you said, but I, I really don't, I don't know how you vote. Do you know that's absolutely intentional on my part? There's one person in this room who knows how I vote, and it's my wife. Well, and Jesus, Jesus knows. So there's two. Here's the thing. Do you know why you don't know that about me? Because I don't want anything to come between you and me and my ability to share Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is what matters. And the moment that one of you finds out I voted for this person or I voted for that person or, or I didn't like this bill or, or I didn't like what that party did or whatever it is, there's somebody in this room who's gonna go, oh man, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. Because we get so entrenched at times that we can't separate. We can't separate our God from some of our positions. And so if somebody holds the opposite position, what does that mean about how they feel about God? It's wrong, right? I don't want you to know where I stand because I don't want anything coming between you and me and my ability to share Jesus. And I want you all to think about this because what matters more than anything else is Christ. He's above all things. And if we do the wrong things, if we start putting ourselves out there in the wrong way with our passions leading, we risk throwing up a wall where we can no longer share Jesus. Is your wall worth it? Is whatever that position you have worth it? Is whatever that viewpoint, whatever that agenda, whatever it is, is it worth it? Because when it gets out there, sometimes you can't pull it back. And that's why you just won't hear me talk about this stuff. Not in that way. Because Jesus is first. Now, my encouragement right before we finish this passage off is this. I challenge you. Maybe it's more than encouragement. I challenge you to think about your passions. To think about what it is that drives you to think about what it is that is so much inside of you that it, that it sometimes forces your hand. It colors how you see people. It colors how you see situations. And then I want you to ask yourself, is this Lord of my life or is Jesus Lord of my life? And I'm pretty sure that every single person in this room, me included, we have passions that are out of control. We have passions that are not representing the Lord Jesus Christ in the way he wants to be represented. They're not being put under his lordship. We're running them. So what do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? What is James's solution? Keep going with me. 
Verse six, but he gives more grace. The problem is our passions. The solution is his grace. And we're gonna read a bunch of stuff here and I'll tell you what none of it is. None of it is rugged Western individualism. None of it is picking ourselves up by our bootstraps. There is nothing wrong with hard work. We need to be hard workers. We need to be responsible people doing the best we possibly can in every area of our lives. We need to train our kids to work, all of it. But when it comes to this issue, the primary thing is not my willpower, It's not me standing up going, I'll take this on. It's his grace. His grace is our answer. And here's what Paul, or what James means. Man, I say grace and immediately jump to Paul. James has grace too. Speaking that mostly to me, not to you. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Number one, humility. Can you admit you're wrong? Can you admit your passion's out of control? Can you admit your passion is being put above Jesus? Keep going. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Not stand up with the boxing gloves against the passion. You'll lose that. I guarantee your passions will knock you out. I mean, if if we could just battle our passions and win, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. The law would have been good enough. We'd have just kept the law and been what God wanted us to be. We couldn't do that. You still can't do that. Submit yourself to God. Say, Lord, humbly, I'm wrong. Lord, I want what you want. Right now, I'm not even necessarily thinking about my passions or how to get out of them. I'm just saying, God, I was wrong in this. I went too far. God, I left you out of the equation. God, I'm not thinking about you and what you want. I'm thinking about what I think you want. And then over here, God, I just want to submit to you. Submit to yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice it doesn't say box the devil. Again, don't get in a boxing match either with your passions or with the devil. Don't invite him into the ring. Just resist him and he will flee He will go away. By the way, how do you resist the devil? By submitting to God. These two things are connected. It's not a, I won't follow the devil, I won't follow the devil. Um, Again, that's just bootstrap thinking. That's not what this is. This is, I'm gonna submit myself to God. Because when you submit yourself to God, the devil will flee. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Oh, sorry, verse eight. I should do this first. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Notice what's not in that verse. If you'll do these 10 things, then you'll be good enough and God will move into your life. You check these boxes, as long as you're this good over here, as long as you pray this many times, none of that's there. Draw near to God. He's gonna draw near to you. Submit yourself to him. Come into his presence. By the way, I I said, you know, somewhat jokingly, but also seriously, My wife and Jesus know my voting, and Jesus is here. Can I tell you, in just a few moments, you will have an opportunity, and it's just one of numerous opportunities to draw near to God. 
as you walk up this aisle and you receive communion. You are intentionally drawing near to God and he will draw near to you because that's what he wants to do. Okay, now to the more harsh verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those two things are equivalent. The images, they're parallel. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. How do you do that? Confess your sins humbly before God that you were wrong and draw near to him. Again, there isn't a list of things you have to do. You cannot cleanse yourself in the Christian faith. All you can do is come before the Lord humbly and admit that you were wrong and say, God, I wanna do what you want to do. I wanna submit my life to you. That is how it happens. Um, That double-minded, that's back to chapter one again. That's just that divided attention. And, And guess what, it fits really well here. I've got my passions and I've got God. Let's, let's let the passions go and let's submit to God and see where he leads us. Let's submit our passions to God so that it's a singular idea. Almost done, although, again, harsh. Be wretched. Again, not language you use a whole lot. Um, but I think we probably all know what it feels like. Think about a time in your life where you know you sinned badly where it was pressed upon you. Like you just, you're so aware of how badly you messed up. Did you feel wretched? Did you recognize how awful that was? That's all he's saying, right? Um, My daughter has struggled with failure at times and her struggle has been letting it go. How many of us have had that? Have you failed and had our time letting that go? And it's hard, isn't it? And part of the reason it's hard is because, and tell me if this isn't your thought process, I don't quite know if it was all hers, but this is what I shared with her, because this is mine. I'm afraid if I let it go, I didn't take it seriously enough. Like I'm, I'm making it too light. Somehow I've got to hold on to it. Why? Let me follow the thinking through so I can punish myself and make up for my failure then what was Jesus doing on the cross? I mean, this is one of the hardest parts about Christianity. It's the balance between saying, I have to actually let this go, not because I don't think it was hard. In fact, I'm gonna be wretched and I'm gonna mourn, but then I'm gonna get up off the ground in forgiveness and cleansing and move forward in Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're supposed to be doing. Keep going. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Oh man, that's so dark. And I mean, like all the gray weather, we finally have sun and James wants us to be all gloomy. But it's simply a recognition of what our sin is. So that, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. Can I ask you a question? Would you rather exalt you or have God exalt you? What do you think the exaltation is gonna look like? I mean, just, just compare it. You know, he exalts you. It is not because you earn it. It's not because you did more right things than wrong things. 
Get that thinking completely out. There is no scale where God is going, well, you did 10 wrong, but 25 right, okay. I will exalt you now. Um, That is not how it works. Can I tell you the scale will always be tipped towards your sinfulness? Because when sinfulness is not defined by just a couple of actions that I do, but it's defined by the totality of my life and who I am emotionally, spiritually, physically. How many sinful thoughts do you have in a day? Don't actually tell me, just, you know. The scale will always be tipped to the other direction. That's why Jesus came. And that's why he says, humble yourselves and he will exalt you. man named uh, Thomas Galudet. Galudet, Galudet, God, I do this every time. This is why I tell people when they come up for reading, don't worry about how the name is pronounced, just say it how you think it's said, because otherwise I'll stumble, and this is what I do. I go look these names up, and I learn them, and then I get up in front of everybody, and for some reason I stumble over the name. Um, I'm gonna get his name at some point. But here's why the man is important. Back in the 1800s, 1814, he had graduated from seminary. He already graduated from Yale and from Harvard. He'd done some work in law and a few other areas. Graduated seminary, and instead of going into the pastor, or he got a few calls, instead of going into the missionary field, he went back home to rest. He was dealing with a lot of health health issues. While Thomas was at home, a neighbor had a daughter. He was watching them play. A lot of kids were playing, and the daughter was by herself. And he found out that Alice Cogswell, I remember her name, um, was deaf. And so he went to her and he began to work with her. He would write things out to get her to know what things were. He would try to like mime stuff to try to help her. And he's doing such a good job that Dr. Mason Cogswell, her father, said, what if you stay as her tutor for a while? And so he's got all these friends from seminary that are going off into the mission field. He stays and he works with this girl. He would go on to found the first institute for the death in America. And one of the trips he made, he went to England. There was already an institute there. And there was a particular family, the Braidwoods, who were running this institute. And they didn't, want to, they didn't want to share their secret about how they were training, and I don't really understand that part of it, but like they wouldn't share with him like their whole system. He got a little bit of it, though. And their system involved reading lips. And when Thomas went away, he said, I don't like their system. Their system is too much as if they can hear. We're kind of asking them to function in a very similar way to people who can hear. And so what he did is he went with manual or sign language. And he began teaching them this way, emphasizing their their sight instead of the normal language that people who can hear have. His son would end up marrying a deaf woman and founding the first church, he was an Episcopal priest, the first church for the deaf, and the same kind of thing, using sign language to do this. Because here's the thing, if you are deaf, you cannot hear. Something different has to be done. 
You can't just keep approaching it the same way because you can't hear. And you think about all the ways that hearing helps us speak. I mean, you might think to yourself, well, I can read the words and I can learn the definitions and know, but hearing is so important to how we learn. Well, if you can't hear, you've got to do things differently. And I tell you something, our passions make us deaf. Our passions, our sinful nature, they are so strong that they make us deaf. And we cannot approach serving God in the same way we might approach a soccer game. Where as long as I just work harder, I might become better. And again, please don't hear me say, don't you need to work hard in your Christian faith. But that's not primary. We cannot approach it that way. We have to approach it by going, God, I am sinful. God, I messed up. God, my passions are out of order. God, I've moved away from you. And I'm coming before you humbly and saying, Lord, I just want to submit to you. And I want to live out of that submission in your strength, in your exaltation, by your spirits, and moving forward in that way. That's how it works. Our flu shot is grace. It's what we have from God. And if we don't take it, I guarantee you, you will keep failing in the Christian life. Without the grace of God, you cannot live the Christian life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your beautiful, amazing grace that would come to us in our darkness, in our enmity with you, when our passions are out of control, even when we've stepped aside and not even noticed that you aren't leading our lives, your grace is still there, always letting us turn back to you. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that we would turn back to you, that you would give us by your spirit enough insight to see the ways that we are wrong, the ways that we are double-minded, the ways that we are adulterous, the ways that we are sinners. Not to beat ourselves up, but to appropriately mourn where we have turned from you and to turn back so you can lift us up. We ask this in the name of Jesus.